we got kind of a lot to move through, so we're going to just kind of jump right in. We're in Acts chapter 25. Tonight's sermon is called <coughs> Appeal to Higher Authority. Appeal to Higher Authority. If you guys remember what we talked about last week, Paul is in Jerusalem. <coughs> He's been kind of a prisoner for two years. With uh, we, we talked about Felix and his wife Drusilla last week, and how Paul basically ministered to them for two years while still a prisoner. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. At Beverly Hills Hotel, though. <laughs> yeah, he was staying in basically the king's palace. Oh, I wasn't here last week. I was like, I don't remember any of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, why don't I remember this? So we don't know if he's still staying there. It doesn't mention where he's living, but the, the point is he's still living. He's a, a prisoner, but he's like, he has the freedom of his friends. He's still hosting Bible studies. He's still writing letters. Actually, a large portion of the letters that we have from the New Testament are written during this two-year period where he's just like, Luke is taking care of him, his personal doctor. So that's what's going on. That's where we find ourselves. Felix, the governor, has been removed because he was abusing the people he's supposed to be governing, and he's been replaced by Festus. So that's... Aren't these awesome? That's a gross name. Awesome <laughs> Felix Festus. That's <laughs> good. So that's where we find ourselves. Acts chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So we don't know if this ambush was part of the request. We don't know for sure, but it kind of sounds like it is, and later on it's going to continue to sound a little bit like it, that's part of the request. <coughs> like, hey, why not bring him to Jerusalem? We'll, we'll take care of him. And you might say, like, why would they just be so open about that? But I, what I'll say about that is, like, a lot of times shady people are kind of, like, they reveal a lot about their shady. <laughs> I was a bartender at an inn when I was, like, 20, 21, and after a shift one night, the head bartender was like, hey, like, you know, how much money did you make? And it's like, right after we locked the doors, we're just starting to clean up, and I, like, pointed at the tip jar, I'm like, well, we haven't counted our tips, so I have no idea how much I made tonight. And he's like, no, that's not what I mean, like tips, sure, but like, how much do you make? Like, I'm not following, like, <laughs> what are we talking about? He's like, well, you know, some, like, people order three beers, you only ring in two, that kind of a thing. I was like, whoa, like, that's not how I roll, man. Like, I don't know if maybe on accident you saw me do that. I was like trying to figure out like where he's coming from. <laughs> Did you see me accidentally put in two beers when somebody ordered three? He's like, no, 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 man. He's like, you don't have to worry about it. Like, I'm not going to say anything. Like, we all do it. And I was like, what are you saying <laughs> right now? He's like, you know, I'll just skim a little off the top. Like, no, dude, that is not like, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in that. That's like not how I roll. That's not how I do things. I, I do not steal. And he's like, really? Like, he kind of gave me the sideways, like, your stupid look. And I was like, yes, really. He's like, if that's true, you're literally the only bartender in this inn that does not steal. And I was like, what? What? 
I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, I was like totally, and it's like he was just so blatant about it. I was like in shock. But I've I've seen that other times in my life where shady people are just kind of sometimes they just have no shame. They're just like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Like, what's the big deal? So that seems to be what's happening here. Also, what I'll say is shady things happen at an exchange of power. This happens at work when a manager steps down or retires and a new manager comes in or changing of a king or a president. Shady people try and sneak in shady things when there's that exchange of power. So that's also what's happening here. Verse 4, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had <clears throat> remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. It sounds familiar other times in Paul's ministry, but also just recently the, the, the people came and they did the same. Oh, Paul did this, Paul did this. And Paul's response was, there's no proof for that. In fact, if you actually brought a witness to, to testify against me, they would say the opposite because that's simply just not what happened. They could not prove, verse 8, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? One of the reasons shady things happen at this exchange of power a lot of the time is that the new leader is trying to get people to like him. Okay? So he'll like, Okay, you asked me a favor. Okay, I'll consider doing that. And, and if I do that, you're going to like be loyal to me, right? Like, that's that's kind of how things happen. But the interesting thing is, why would having Paul's trial in Jerusalem be a favor for the Jews? Just like a killing. Right. That's why it would be a favor, right? Because it's very likely that Paul's going to be found guilty in Jerusalem. Or he knows that they're going to lie in wait and murder him before he gets to the trial. Right? So, he knows. that. That's why I say it seems very obvious he knows what the favor is. That's why it's a favor. <laughs> uh, wanting to do the Jews a favor, he asks Paul this thing. One man's death, one man's sacrifice, right, is what Festus is thinking, is loyalty from a very prominent city that he is now governing. It's like, uh, you know, uh, this, this could be good for me. This one guy, he's an old guy at this, at this point. Paul's in his 60s. It's kind of like, yay. It's a good life, like, maybe this is a thing that I'm going to do. But he asks it as a question, which is interesting. He asks Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and have this this trial? Uh, sometimes when we want to do a bad thing, but we don't want to feel like a bad person, we sort of frame it as a question. And that's what Festus is doing. Like, oh, well, maybe, maybe we can do this. And that way, when people are like, oh, wait, what do you mean? Are you saying this? Like, no, I wasn't saying that. I was just asking the question, you know? And it's like, it's a, it's a way to do shady stuff. It's a, it's a way to do wicked stuff and make it seem like you weren't actually doing that wicked thing, 
right? You weren't actually doing that bad. Oh, that was my idea. You're, you're the one saying it. <laughs> it's like, no, that is definitely what Festus is doing. He's trying to feel like he's not a bad person, but he's trying to do a wicked thing here. And we do the same thing, right? Sometimes we don't want to feel like a bad person, and sometimes we even lie to ourselves, like, oh, well, I'm doing this because of this other reason. It's like, but God actually knows not only your thoughts and what's going on inside your heart, but he knows the reason of your thoughts. Sometimes we don't even know the reason of our thoughts, but God does. Sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to do this, and you kind of find yourself like, well, why am, I, why am I doing this? And you don't even know what you're doing or why you're doing it. It's like, how did I get this far down this path of researching this thing I shouldn't be researching or looking at this thing online that I shouldn't be looking at, and you're making excuses and you're lying to yourself and you don't even realize that God knows why you're doing all those things. So we need to be honest with ourselves and step back and say, all right, God, like, I want to have even every thought in submission to you, right? I, I, I need to be honest with myself. I need to be honest with you. And as I'm going down these paths, not try and be sneaky, right? Be covert, but be overt with yourself and be overt with, with God as well. So Festus is trying to be sneaky here. He is trying to be, as we've been calling it, covert. Uh, he's conniving. He's, he's doing this sneaky thing to try and basically get Paul killed. And covert people, they tend to think that they're smarter than everybody else. Covert people, they do these sneaky things, might seem like very little or not anything when they're doing it, but it, it is a sneaky thing to benefit themselves, and that's, that's always the focus. Verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul is very wisely and respectfully telling Festus here that he sees what's going on. And again, like Jesus said, be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. That's Paul. He's very overt, but he's also like, he's saying an overt thing, but in a wise way. He's not just coming out the door, you know, saying, you whitewash wall. You whitewash wall. <laughs> he's, he's been there, right? He's, he's not a perfect guy, but he's basically saying, if I'm deserving of death, then I'm like, I'm willing to die. If I am. But, He's saying, you know that I'm not. So he's saying, like, I see what you're doing here. He's, he, why, why bring up the dying thing? Festus didn't say anything about, like, hey, you're going to die. He just says, hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem? Paul's like, if I'm deserving of death, because that's basically where you're sending me, then I'm willing to die if I did something, but you know I didn't do anything. He's calling Festus out here in a very wise and, and, and gentle way. So um, he appeals to Caesar. Now, we can see, just getting in a little bit of the history here, in Rome there was a hierarchy uh, in, in many different ways. If you remember Lysias, he's sort of the, the commander of Jerusalem, and he's about to whip Paul, and Paul says, is it legal for you to whip a Roman? And Lysias goes, you know, I, I'm a Roman, and I, I got that by paying a lot of money, meaning he was a slave, and he, he paid his own freedom cost. His, his owner let him pay to become free. Okay, but Paul says, his response is, I was born a Roman. And that instantly goes, 
oh, hierarchy, and that's why Lysias is scared at that point. He's like, oh, shoot, this guy outranks me because he's born a Roman. So going a little further than that, now Lysias is free, right? He's a commander, so in some ways, obviously, he, he outranks Paul, but in that world of ranking, there is there are certain rights that Paul had over Lysias because of that situation, but Lysias was like the commander, right? That 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 would be like local government. That'd be like Los Angeles. You go to court. You're in LA County Court. You had a ticket or whatever. Something went wrong. But if if you're getting mistreated there, or if it's not going well, you can you can appeal as as a citizen. We can appeal to California Supreme Court. We we can appeal to a higher authority. This isn't working. Here's my rights. I'm going to appeal to the Supreme, California Supreme Court. Okay? So that's basically what's happened here. Felix is the governor. That would be like that regional government. So that'd be like the Supreme Court of California. Now, what Paul has just done is he's in that local Supreme Court. He's just gone to what we would say the United States Supreme Court. That's Caesar. He's the supreme government. He's the one. That'd be like us saying, I appeal to the United States Supreme Court, I'm taking that all the way to the top. And that's what Paul just did. And he has rights to do that because he's a citizen. And what he's doing is he's legally objecting in court and he's appealing to their Supreme Court. And sometimes we can kind of get what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Like, oh, they're like way back then. They're so primitive. And it's like, it's the Wild West. What's going on over there? But it's very, very organized. Like a lot of the stuff that we have in our government comes from the Roman government. We took a lot of the ideas, we took a lot of the, 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 the things that we have implemented into our government, it started in Rome. And, and we see that here, it's, it's not like they're like this primitive race and they can't, can't figure life out. We're not so different from them, is, is kind of what I'm trying to say. Also, like, it, it's important for us, like, knowing the laws of the land and how to sort of conduct yourself and navigate the legal system. Like, it, that can be a very wise and godly thing, actually, in certain situations. Maybe Paul didn't know about this appealing to Caesar. Maybe he learned it along the way within these two years. We don't know. Maybe he knew the whole time and he's kind of saving it for that, that moment. But this trial is not going well. He is being mistreated and he has a leg to stand on to appeal to that higher <coughs> Okay? But we, like, let's turn this back on ourselves, right? Like, it's good for us to know the laws of the land, conduct ourselves legally uh, in, in certain situations. And I'm not <coughs> saying that we should, like, get too distracted with politics, but it's good to know what's going on in politics. It's good to have an idea of your surroundings and be involved in a godly way. So what I'm saying here is, like, yeah, know a little bit about our laws when there's something to vote about, like, it's godly, it's good to vote your conscience. Too many Christians today say, oh, we live in California, our voice doesn't matter, I'm just not going to vote. Or or they put it even more like, well, God's in control and nothing I do matters, so I'm just not going to vote. And it's like these situations, like, well, maybe God wants you to sway something a different way by voting in a godly manner. We are, first and foremost, <coughs> we're Christians, right? We live kingdom down. God's kingdom down. We don't li live culture up. And I've heard people say, like, oh, when I step into the voting booth, I take my Christian hat off, put my American hat on. It's like, that's not how it works. God wants us to vote in a godly way and vote our conscience. And so what I'm trying to 
encourage you guys to do is, yeah, know what's going on and, and get out there and, and, and vote when it's, when it's time to do so. And also, like, know the laws of the land, know what uh, you should be involved in. Don't get too distracted by it and wrapped up into it, but there is a time and a place to, to, to know what's going on and vote. Verse 12, getting back to our story, says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, so he's kind of like, what is this? He's like appealing to Caesar. What does this look like? What's our, our policy? Like, maybe we can just kill him and it'll, it'll be easier, right? Um, since that's what he's trying to do anyway. When Festus conferred with the council, they answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. This is a legal proceeding. There is paperwork. There are witnesses. There is records of what's going on in court. He has a case because he's not being treated properly, and it's all on record, okay? Again, we can kind of put ourselves above this and like, oh, it's just like a couple of guys in a room. No, this is this is court, and there is there are records of it. He confers with them like, ah, can we do this? Should we do this? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> he totally has a case. We're sending him to Caesar. So they plan to send him. Verse 13, and after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So, who are Agrippa and Bernice? Any thoughts? Ideas? Bernice sounds like the name of a very beautiful woman. She was historically quite beautiful. There we go. Uh, this from last week? Uh, it's related to last week. So, it's like one where he's like with a sister or his wife's sister or something. Or that makes you're sense. close. Okay. So, who are we talking about here? This is actually Herod Agrippa II, and Bernice is not his wife, but his sister. Now, oh, that's worse than what I was saying. <laughs> this is, uh, there's a rumor, historically, that they were a little more than brother and sister, if you know what I'm saying. A little incestuous relationship going on. Many historians reject it. But it's also, even Josephus, who is a good friend of this Agrippa, he, he repeats it. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, this is actually happened, but he says, hey, this, is, this was a rumor. And so nobody really knows what was going on there, and they did a lot to try and make it seem like it. She even marries a guy almost seemingly with the sole purpose of like, see, I'm not having a relationship with my brother. So it's like, there's some weird stuff going on there. To your question, Anthony... It is related to last week because Agrippa and Bernice are Drusillas. We learned about Drusilla last week. They're siblings. So their father is Agrippa I from Acts chapter 12, where he's praised as a god, he's loving it, and then an angel strikes him and then he's eaten by worms, the Bible says. He's stricken and he dies shortly after because he is glorifying himself above God. Um, super interesting family. I talked about this a little bit last week. This is the type of family that movies are made about. These people, Bernice and Agrippa, their great-grandfather was Herod the Great. This is who murdered all those babies when Jesus was born, right? He, he brings in the wise men. He says, tell me the thing. And then he, he has all those babies murdered. They are Herod, Agrippa, <clears throat> who we're talking about here, the second, um, he is king of Judea at this time, or at least parts of Judea, not not fully. Um, and Bernice is queen of other parts. Wait, so, 
Did you say Bernice and Agrippa are the siblings of Drusilla? Yes. So are they Jews then? Because says Drusilla is a Jewess. They are Jews. Oh. Yes. So technically, they are equals with Festus, but not really, because Festus or and Felix they were appointed by Rome. Rome says you're the governor. The Herods are what they call client kings and queens. Okay, so they were in power. This is the royal family. They were in power before Rome took over, and what Rome would do is say, cool, royal family, you can stick around because people like you, and they'll <coughs> pay us if we just kill you. So stick around, but you have to pledge allegiance to us to stick around. So that's what the Herods did, and they had some responsibilities, but they weren't really in charge. They were just kind of like the royal family in almost in name. Uh, yeah, kind of in the British way. Uh, Preventing civil unrest. <laughs> that's exactly right. They're just they're just there for people to love them and and prevent any any you know craziness. Also, very interesting. This point isn't really talked about that much, but I was really excited when I I found it out. This Agrippa II, he is the last king of Judea. Not just in the Herodian line, which he is the last in the Herodian line. He, didn't have, he died without an heir, and the Herods were no more. But this is the last king of Judea. This is important because God makes this promise throughout the Old Testament that there's always going to be a king in Israel. And he's setting up the king to sit on David's throne forever. Well, this is God's way of putting the and to the blood king of Israel to say, Jesus is the king who sits on David's throne forever. That's cool. Amazing. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I just found that out today, and I was just, like, jazzed about it. He was, he was the king when it, in, in 70 AD when it fell, right? He was. Yeah, so once that happened, it was gone. Yeah. All of it. He dies later. He was not in yeah. the, the area because he was, they had kind of moved his territory a little bit up. They were trying to remove the royal family. That's what Rome did. They kept these royal families around, and then they'd give them responsibilities outside of their area, and then eventually there was no royal family. They would just bleed them out, and then their governors would be ruling. So that's what happened. So he was actually not in the area. He, does, he doesn't die until, like, 92, I don't think. But, um, but, yeah, he's the last king of Judea. So, very interesting. This is God's way of saying, Jesus is king forevermore. And so, right now, that's where our king is. King of Judah, king of Israel, and we are part of Israel by promise. Uh, get into Romans for that. Verses 14, as we continue with our story. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before them. So, he lays his case before Agrippa and Bernice, saying, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face. It sounds like our rule, the right to face your accusers, right? Again, we're getting some stuff from the Romans here. And has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Festus is going to bend the truth a little bit here. This is the, the sin of omission. It's true that Paul, that he knew Paul was innocent, right? And he was not going to let this happen right away, but as we saw, eventually he was going to do them this favor. So he was ready to send Paul to his destruction and to his death. So he's leaving some of the truth out, which 
is a lie. It's still a lie, even if you're not saying the truth. That's, as I said, the, the sin of omission. Uh, he's going to make himself sound like a real stand-up guy as we continue on here in verse 17. It says, Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. See, I, I knew the, the whole time that this is how it was going down. But uh, had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commended him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. This word Augustus here is used sort of like the throne or his highness. Caesar Augustus is obviously long dead, but his name lived on in this way, where they would say Augustus meaning the throne or, or his highness, his royal highness. That's, that's sort of how Festus is using that here. Verse 22. Then Agrippa <coughs> said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So now Agrippa, he was not alive when Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. He wasn't alive during that, but he is Jewish. He, he obviously has been in the area for a very long time. He knows all about Jesus. It's a very, again, overt thing. Jesus Wait. lived in a very overt life. How old is he then? How long is this since Jesus? Uh, it has been, it's like 62 AD right now. Oh. It's been quite some time. So I don't remember how old he is, but he was like, he was 17 when Agrippa the first died. I was under the impression that Paul was alive during Jesus' time, but maybe... Paul was, but I'm he saying... He was, but he was young. He was young. Yeah, okay. he wasn't, like... But this guy was this, younger than Paul. Obviously. This guy was younger than Paul. Okay. Yeah. So, he, uh... His great-uncle, this Agrippa, his great-uncle was Herod the, the Tetrarch, or Antipas. This is That was the man who had John the Baptizer beheaded. And also questioned Jesus right before Jesus was crucified. He, he's the one that says, Jesus, come in and, and do a miracle for me. And Jesus doesn't answer him, so he just sends him away. Okay, That was this Agrippa's great uncle. So he knows the stories. He knows who Jesus is. He knows all. He's very well acquainted with all this stuff. So he, he knows exactly who, who Festus is talking about when he says, some Jesus who died and and Paul's saying he's alive. He's like, okay, I know exactly what's going on. I, I kind of want to hear what, what Paul has to say. Verse 23. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, right, or, or great pageantry, I might uh, say in some of your Bibles, they're making a big deal of themselves and loving every minute of it, and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, Festus commanded Paul to be brought in. So Paul was now going to speak in an auditorium full of people, and specifically prominent people. He is, uh, they don't know this, but they're his audience for a sermon. He's the keynote speaker, and he's just going <laughs> to lay it out for them. Verse 24 says, And Festus said, King Agrippa, 
And all the men who are here present with us, you see this man, about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him, therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand, spoke with his hands, and says that in all of his sermons, Paul stretches out his hands, and he answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all these things which I am accused of by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So, once again, we uh, see Paul knows his audience. He knows about Augustus. He knows specific things about Augustus. And he respectfully addresses him in, in sort of a submissive way. He's kind of respecting him and saying, hey, I'm happy to talk to you. This is the reason I'm happy about it. And uh, also, with Paul, we've seen that he has a tendency to have long sermons. He speaks all through the night sometimes, while sleeps and die. He raises them from the dead. He continues his sermon. This is how Paul rolls. So his, re his request to this auditorium is going to be the same as mine tonight. Uh, so please hang in there. Be patient with me because we got still some more time to, uh, to get through our sort of telic portion, uh, as it were. What's that? Nobody sitting on the windowsill. Yeah, nobody sitting on the windowsill. Yeah, so Paul says, and this is my request too, uh, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Two quick things, one on topic and one off topic. I'll do the off topic one first. Uh, I have a slight frustration with the translators here because what Paul actually just said is the Jews foreknew me. Uh, that phrase that he, he uses, they knew me from the first. He's saying the actual, it's the same word everywhere else in the Bible where it's translated foreknew. That's what Paul just said. They, they foreknew me. Not that they foreknew him from the beginning of time. But he's just saying, they knew me before, because that's what foreknew means to know beforehand. <laughs> that's a little off topic. Maybe some study for you on a different time uh, or a different night. But that's just a little frustration I have. Now, on topic, Paul is very simply saying here that I grew up as a Jew in Jerusalem. They all know me. And he's speaking specifically to Herod, who is a Jew, who knows exactly what a Pharisee is. But... He still is is being very clear what it is because the rest of the auditorium may not know. It's the strictest sect of the religion. It's a strict upbringing according to the law of the Jews and committed to Scripture. That's, that's what he's laying out here, verse 6. And now I stand 
and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Now, remember that this is the thing that Paul continues to repeat, that this is what he's being accused for. I'm accused because I am speaking about the, the resurrection. Now, he's wrongfully attacked in, in the temple when he's there in submission, about to take this vow, and they attack him and they try and kill him. And when Lysias asks him why, perceiving his audience, again, he's knowing his audience, he sees the, the Sadducees, he sees the Pharisees, he knows that this is their tension. Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, there's more Pharisees than Sadducees, they believe in the resurrection and the spirit, right? And so his answer of why are you being attacked is because of the resurrection. So at, at that point, the Pharisees are like, we don't care about him. And they all start fighting the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So um, he, he is speaking again. This is why I'm being persecuted, because I said this one thing, right? There was a riot, and they're trying to blame that riot on, on Paul, because riots are very frowned upon in Rome, punishable by death. Don't start riots. Don't incite riots. Don't be that guy. And so Paul is saying, they attacked me. They started the riot. And then I said one thing, and then another riot breaks out, because I was talking about the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blasphemy. And being exceedingly <coughs> enraged against them, I persecuted them, even in foreign cities. Paul is he's basically saying, I, I know what's going on here. He is being accused of blasphemy. They said he started the riot. And, and he's blaspheming the temple, and he's blaspheming God, and he's blaspheming the high priest, and he's, he's guilty of blasphemy. That's like their main thing that they keep trying to pin on him. And what he is saying in sort of a roundabout way is, I know how this works. Like, they're doing what I used to do. I used to compel people to blaspheme. If you remember, they were trying to provoke him to say or do something that they could see. See? See? Blasphemy. That's what he's doing. That whitewashed wall <coughs> comment that he makes to the high priest. They're trying to see see how, how rude he is and how he's, he's blaspheming the high priest. So they're trying to put that on him. He's like, I, I've, I've been there. I was them. They all know me. I did this with them, with the high priest specifically, and now they're doing it to me. Verse 12. While thus occupied, right, while I was persecuting Christians, as I journeyed to Damascus uh, with authority and commission from the chief priests... At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, right? It's brighter than the sun at noon, uh, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus 
whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those, right? He declared, he preached, he proclaimed first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Jesus is the only way to be clean in the sight of God. That's what sanctified means, right? Set apart, holy, godly, clean, white as snow, and faith in Jesus is the only way to be seen that way before God. Forgiveness of sins only comes through faith in Jesus. You can't work hard enough to earn it, right? You cannot work hard enough to earn it. With that said, these sermons of become a Christian and then do nothing, because you, you, you can do nothing. It's all only about what Jesus did. You can't do anything, just become a Christian and do nothing. That is not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. Here Paul says, do works, right? repent, and then do works befitting of repentance. So realize that you're being called by God. Have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call on his name. Right? This is all biblical language. It's all laid out very clearly. And then live worthy of the calling for which you are called. You are being called for a reason. God is calling your name, calling you to repentance, not just so you, he can be covered if you reject him. Oh, well, I warned him. That's not what God's doing. He's calling you to repentance for a reason. So Paul is saying, respond to that and then live for that reason do works for that reason. We talked a few weeks about in Ephesians 2, it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in that, right? So he's created you to do good works and he's calling you to do those good works. So repent and then do those good works. Verse 21. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. They're the ones who started the riot merely because I was giving them good news that, that they could be saved, that I was calling them to repentance, that was told, God himself told me to do this thing. And that's why they're attacking me. Verse 22, therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand. Paul is here attributing his protection, which we've seen throughout his ministry and even leading up to this, right? All that protection, he's, he's attributing it to God. Because he knows, if there's still <coughs> breath in my lungs, then God still has work for me to do. 
And he's already been told specifically by Jesus appearing to him and says, you're going to Rome, and you're going to minister in Rome the way you did in Jerusalem. So Paul knows, God's going to continue to protect me because I know he's sending me to Rome. God always fulfills his word. So I know I'm going to, to Rome, and God has been protecting me up to this point. Having obtained help from God to this day, I stand, witnessing both to small and great. You can imagine him pointing to the king. Small, right? He's been having Bible studies in his his wherever he's staying these two years, and he's now speaking to the great, to to the king of Judea at the time, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The Jewish leaders are accusing him of blaspheming against the law and against the prophets. What Paul is saying here is, I'm the one preaching the law and the prophets, but I'm preaching it in all of its fullness. Christ came and fulfilled all the things that the law and the prophets laid out. He did all of these things, and that's what I'm preaching. They're saying I'm blaspheming it. I'm saying it in the truth. And they're attacking me for saying that truth. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. So Paul was a, a smart and educated, well-spoken guy. Festus obviously knows this because he's hearing Paul speak. You can, you can tell when you're speaking to an educated guy, right? But also he has seen how Paul has been living, right? Not, not just in his deeds, but also his living situation. The books that Paul surrounds himself in, in and around and, and the scrolls that Paul, his friends are bringing to him and he's studying and he's like, you know, he, he, Festus has seen his living situation. He sees that Paul's smart, he's educated, and he's continuing to educate himself. And he says, all this learning is just driving you crazy. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Being learned and be, being educated and, and studying the scriptures and knowing what they say, it is a good and it is a godly thing. It's something that we should strive to do more. But someone raising the dead, someone raising from the dead, this is way too much for Festus to believe. That, that is crazy. That is nuts, Paul. You, are, you have lost it. You're reading too much, and you, you don't know what you're saying. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, which he's already written at this point, that the cross is foolishness to the world. The world's going to look at us and be like, you're crazy, you're stupid. You actually believe that somebody died and then rose again and is, is sitting and ruling right now in heaven? The answer is yeah. I think that they, like, either weren't familiar with or thought it was just a hoax, the whole thing about Lazarus raising from the dead, because there was, like, a lot of people who witnessed that. Yeah, again, Festus is not Jewish, though. He's, he's like, new to the area. He he doesn't know that much about Jesus. So he's just kind of like, man, you're nuts. Crucifixion and resurrection, like, there were bodies that came out of the grave walking around Jerusalem. It was a small event. Yeah. No, the the whole area knows. And the Either the Pharisees know. The yeah. Pharisees know very intimately. Yeah. They they saw Jesus, and they probably saw some of those raised people when Jesus rose. Incredible. It's nuts. And they still seek to kill his followers. Verse 25. 
But he said, I am not mad. Most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. That's what we were just talking about, right? <laughs> if you're from the area, you know that this is truth and reason. You saw it. You witnessed it. And the king saw and witnessed it. His family saw and witnessed it. Everybody in this area knows that what I'm saying is true. And, and again, note the covert versus overt theme again here. This wasn't done in a corner. It's not covertly, you know, Jesus didn't sneak around and plan all of this stuff. And then after he died, plan for his body to be stolen or, or it's also impossible to plan for your mother to be a virgin, which was prophesied 700 <laughs> years beforehand. Like all this stuff, it, it wasn't done in secret. It was done in open and everybody knows this to be true. Jesus said a similar thing when he was questioned, where they asked him, like, oh, what is it you believe? He says, nothing that I said was said in secret. Nothing I did was done in a corner, right? You want to know what I believe? Go ask the many thousands of people who heard me speak. Go ask one of my followers. Bring in a witness. He says that because when he was questioned, it was the middle of the night, and he knew he wasn't getting a fair trial. But continuing here with Paul, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. A poll was recently taken and, and came out revealing that millennials, huge majority of millennials, think that faith should be a private thing. They actually think that it's immoral to share what you believe with somebody who believes something opposite. Mm. Immoral? Yeah, that makes me angry. Here, <laughs> Paul is being very overt with his faith. He's putting it out there to a whole auditorium and says, yeah. Agrippa says, Paul, are you trying to convert me? And Paul very simply says, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And not just you, but this whole auditorium. You are all welcome to repent and then live according to that repentance. I wish that all of you would would believe, right? Faith is overt. We are to speak for Christ. We are, our, our faith needs to be overt. Do people know you're a Christian? Do they know what you believe? Do you let them say things they shouldn't? We need to, we need to be overt with what we believe, and, and be overt, meaning stand up and say something when it's time to stand up and say something. It doesn't happen in the corner. It does not happen in the corner. Happens out in the open. So stand up, say something. Yeah, this is good. Good stuff. Verse uh, 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become 
both almost and altogether, such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I don't, like, understand why that inhibits them from setting him free. Because he appealed to Caesar, the paperwork story, that's the process. Again, this is a very legal, legally binding thing. They can't do anything. He has locked himself in to go to Caesar. He submitted to the higher authorities. So mm-hmm. Exactly. They, he kind of, that kind of shows that they're kind of getting soft towards the end. Yeah. Not not like totally, but like yeah, he probably would have been set free. Like, but he's but he wouldn't. Have, he would have been sent to Jerusalem and murdered. Exactly. That's <laughs> what I was gonna say. We know that's not true. King Agrippa doesn't know. Yeah. He's like, hey, this guy may have been set free, and Festus is going <laughs> or, <Right>. or murdered. <laughs> it's like, yeah. He, he knows what he was doing, right? But Paul's appeal to Caesar, it was according to God's will, right? Because Jesus already appeared to him and says, you're going to Rome. Right. So his appeal to Caesar was according to God's will. One of the works that God set up for Paul to do beforehand, that he should walk in them, was to proclaim the truth of the gospel to Herod and tell that whole auditorium to appeal to a higher authority than Caesar. Mm. He's saying, you all need to appeal to the highest authority. Right. He's appealed to Caesar, but he knows that he's appealed to much higher than Caesar. And he's calling that whole auditorium to do the same. I would that everyone who hears me today <laughs> might believe, have faith in Jesus, and do works befitting of repentance. That you might be just as I am, except for Except for these chains. Paul had previously written a letter to the Romans, where in chapter 6 he says, you're either a slave or in bondage to sin, or you're a slave to righteousness. One leads to eternal death, and the other leads to eternal life. The slave of righteousness is a bond servant to Christ, as Paul says many times, that he's a bond servant to Christ, which means there's a choice. In Jewish culture, a bond servant was somebody who had previously been a servant or or maybe had worked for somebody and they make a promise, they make a choice to commit their life to be a servant for a specific master for the rest of their life. And it was a, a bonding thing. You, you're okay. You're, again, bound by the law to be this person's servant for the rest of your life. And they would do that because it was a good job, they were a good master, they were well taken care of, and like, man, this is going to be better for me than, than the unknown, I don't know what, it, what else is out there. So they would be a, become a bondservant to somebody, and Jesus, or Paul calls himself a bondservant to Jesus Christ. And that is the being a slave to righteousness, walking in the works that you were created in Christ Jesus to do, and, and, and walking in the Spirit as Paul also says in Romans, right? So walk in those things. Walk in righteousness. Do those works befitting of 
repentance. Repent, right? Come clean to God. Be honest with Him. Be overt within your own heart. Be honest with yourself and say, all right, God, like, what do you got me to do? And then live those works out. Be overt in your everyday life as well. And walk in those those works. Walk in righteousness. Walk according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you for for creating us for good works, which God has set up for us to do. God, and I pray that we will see those things, that we will not back down from them, that we will choose to be overt people and and, um, step up to the plate when you call us to, God. Help us not be so consumed with our own lives that we don't see those promptings, Father. I pray that uh, you will empower us with your Holy Spirit to fulfill the calling that you have on our lives, God. And I thank you so much for that calling. You've called us not only out of our sin and into righteousness, but also into a specific calling for our lives, God. And I pray that you will give us the courage to walk into that calling the way Paul did, not caring what it meant for his specific life, but caring more for furthering your kingdom than for our own gain. God, so we love you. We praise you. I thank you so much for your word and for this time together that we get to dive in and and learn from it, God. Pray that you bless the rest of this evening and help us to be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. I know it's a longer one. It was good. It was nothing. No, you need to have that whole thing. Yeah. It's a good story. Like, oh, sorry, cut halfway through Paul's little sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Acts is like that, though. There's like the chapters don't line up with concepts no. at all. No. Yeah. And it's it's funny, similarly to um, the Gospels, right? It's kind of like stuff happens really quick. This happened, and this like happened. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, specifically, though, what I was going to say is the end of Jesus' life, everything slows down, and there's a lot more detail, and all of a sudden you're seeing, like, almost, like, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute stuff. It's like, and this happened, and it's, like, a lot more detail. We see that in Acts as well, where some of his travel was like, oh, then he went here, then he went here, then he went here, and it's like, holy cow, he just took an eight-hour plane ride on foot. Like, literally, that's, that's how far he was, right? And so... It just zooms through it and zooms back, and then it gets to Jerusalem and it's like super slows down, and we get a close look of sort of the the last couple few years of Paul's life. So that's a similarity to the Gospels also, where it's like a ton happens really fast, and then at the end it's like, all right, slow down. Here's how it all ended. So crazy that we only have two chapters left in Acts. Yeah, that is crazy. This was, uh, I think, sermon number 34. Is it really that much? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, well, Acts is a big book. It's a big one. Yeah. I think it's Revelation. Is Acts the it's, biggest one? In so, the New Testament. Oh, wait, I'm forgetting with the Gospels, though. No, Luke, Luke and Acts, those two combined, that's the majority of the New Testament. So it is yeah. one of the biggest books yeah. in the New Testament. Yeah. But, um. Well, Matthew, because Matthew's like 28 chapters. Yeah. Maybe they're 28. Yeah, the Gospels are big, but it's kind of like. I mean, John Acts, the right one, but each one is like 40 verses long. Yeah, it's a big one.
always thought that Mark was kind of like the short one. Cause Luke yeah. Is yeah, Mark's like boom, yeah. boom, boom. And I, I forget how many hundreds of times he uses the word immediately. I, th- I think it's <laughs> maybe just around 100, but it's like he just, it, that's how fast it's like, then this happened and this happened. And it's like yeah. everything was very immediate. Did you see that movie, The Apostle Paul? Mm-hmm. I saw it. Was it good? I was disappointed. It's, a, with it's when he's in prison. And Luke goes to him and starts writing yeah. as, as Paul's like Sweet. in prison dictating to him. It's pretty good. I like it's it not what I expected it to be. I didn't know it was going to be like that. What did you think of it? I thought it was going to be more like Paul's life, I guess, instead of just him being in prison and then, like, thinking back on things, and so I was like, oh, and then I guess I was, like, thrown off by all the stuff they had about, like, the church being, like, arguing about, like, we should rebel, we should Oh, that side plot. Yeah, the side plot thing that took up a lot of the movie, I was like, what is this? Yeah, the side plot was really (laughs) They had to do that probably just for some filler. Yeah. Just showing that there were some Christians that were wanted to stay, yeah. they were going to get lit up like a candle. Yeah, they were trying to escape persecution. The reason they did so that, nice. though, is because they're trying to paint the picture of what persecution yeah, actually was yeah. looking yeah. like yeah. while he was in prison. Yeah. Huh? It was bad. They yeah. showed that. Was, Which the yeah. Bible doesn't like as much give you a picture of no they're kind of setting the stage of history because it was like a side it's worth watching though yeah Yeah, it is i thought it was good the the way that it shows like paul the way that he felt about like the people that he had persecuted oh right i I thought that was born in the flesh yeah they're they're because it's kind of like a a thought out there that his thorn in the flesh is the guilt he had from killing people I, yeah. I, I I liked how they showed that in the movie. Yeah, yeah. because it showed it was really good. That, that was probably the best part, I think. I'd be into that. Because yeah. he's like, some of the depression <laughs> that Paul talks about in a lot of his letters is like really deep, like so depressed, like unto death, he says. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he is down on himself a lot of his ministry, but he's like, but I strive on for you. Yeah. yeah, in Christ Jesus. <laughs> That's exactly the state he's in in the movie. Yeah, is that whole time. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they kind of that. Okay, let's make that the main conflict mm-hmm. while he's in prison, yeah. and then we can hit the highlights that Luke's kind of recording. That was good. I mean, yeah. I thought it was well done as far as like you know, it wasn't cheesy. Mm-hmm. Like That's good. That's Christian. a step in the right direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Huh. That's a step in the right direction. Yeah, you could, I mean, like I said, the only thing that's annoying is the Christians are arguing. Yeah. yeah. About leaving, yeah. I yeah, was, like, annoyed with getting, all of those parts. It's like, <laughs> oh, gosh. The banter back and forth is... Yeah. Yeah, that was annoying. But other than that, it was, I, I liked it. 